Hi, I'm Jeremy Leslie, and this is the Mag Culture Podcast. Welcome to the first episode of 2021, a new year that I hope is going well for you. We're busy planning our year while fulfilling online sales and click and collect while customers aren't allowed inside the shop due to the latest lockdown. It's wet and grey outside, a typical London January, but here at the shop we have plenty of colour, not least in the day glow pages of the main subject of this episode. It's a special one to mark the 40th anniversary of ID magazine. I'll be talking to its founder, Terry Jones, about how he launched it in 1980. We also hear from Tricia Jones, Terry's wife, and Dylan Jones, editor of GQ here in the UK, who started his career at ID in 1983. But first, a look through some current magazines. I'm pleased to say there's no slowdown in new magazines arriving. It seems our hunger to make magazines matches only our desire to enjoy them. Our shelves are as full as ever, and I've pulled a few current issues from those shelves to share with you here. First up, The Modernist has developed into a rather special magazine these past few years. I don't think it gets enough attention. The Modernist architecture of Northern England might seem a limited niche, but the latest issue, the number 37, shows how to build on that theme. The issue concerns Kino, German for cinema, and although it announces that theme on the cover with a beautiful 30s cinema building, a comfortable fit with its core concern, inside there's more nuance. Movie art direction is examined through a look at the modernist interiors of Spike Jones's film Her, and the sci-fi genre is called out for its institutionalised sexism. Filmmaker Gary Huswit, who specialises in documentaries about modernist icons from typefaces to designers, discusses his obsession with Brian Eno's film soundtracks. That's just a, a, a small portion of what's on offer in the issue. It's a lively, intelligent read. It's guest edited this time by Jason Wood, who's the creative director of film and culture at the Home Art Centre in Manchester, and is presented beautifully, a series of fold-out pages adding visual drama and surprise to the stories. Meanwhile, from New York, Pinup is another magazine that uses architecture as its reference point and then spins off elsewhere. We've mentioned it here before, but I just wanted to highlight it again for its dramatic use of a zigzag die-cut edge in its new 29th edition, themed Revolution. Visually beautiful, yet physically aggressive, founder Felix Burichter described this jagged edge on the journal recently as a complete departure from how a magazine usually feels. It's prickly, and a useful reminder of the physical presence of print. He also noticed it was a nod towards the finishing used by Nest magazine, as featured in the last episode of this podcast. Even though print is often positioned as an alternative to doom scrolling on our phones, it's also hard to avoid the pandemic in print at the moment. Two very different approaches are represented by first the New Yorker, who started the new year by giving almost an entire issue over to a typically detailed overview by Lawrence Wright of how the US dealt with COVID. And then there's Quarantimes, a one-off risograph zine from Brooklyn designer Chiara Carrasco. A collection of daily reports from within isolation, it maps the repetition and mundanity of extended life indoors as she uses deadpan humour to stay happy. Standing desks earn standing ovation. New recipe demands a special outing to grocery store are two stories. Think of it as a pastiche of the local parish council newsletter in the same way The Onion mocks newspapers. And finally from our shelves, some birthday editions. First, 032C from Berlin marks 20 years with a fabulous multi-page fold-out section that highlights its rich visual history alongside a timeline showing its increasingly central role in the intersection of culture and fashion. 
but a 20 years seems impressive, double that for ID's latest birthday. The impressive legacy issue weighs in at 434 pages, about 10 times the pagination of its 1980 launch issue. As well as fresh content, there's plenty of legacy material, as we'll hear from Terry Jones shortly. This quarter sees a triple serving from ID, the regular issue, a special hardback edition of the same magazine, plus Up and Rising, a smart additional celebration of extraordinary black voices that looks ahead to the next chapter of the magazine. After this break, we'll take a close-up look at the launch and history of ID with the magazine's founder, Terry Jones. London printers, Park Communications, play a key part in the independent publishing scene, helping ambitious magazine makers turn their dreams into reality. Look at the latest issues of Dog, Season Zine and Positive News to get an idea of what they can do for your magazine. As well as helping you achieve the highest creative standards, Park are fully committed to helping you produce your magazine in the most environmentally friendly and sustainable manner. Check their new website for details. Search Park Communications. Just like my culture, Park Communications love magazines and we're proud to have them sponsor this podcast. Before we go to Terry, I'm delighted to be joined by Dylan Jones, long-standing editor of the British edition of GQ magazine. His latest book, Sweet Dreams, was published at the end of last year, a hefty collection of reminiscences about the 1980s club and music scenes. Among the detailed recollections spanning the rise of the new romantics from London curiosities to global pop stars, a section charts the arrival of three original style magazines, ID, The Face and Blitz. Dylan was editor of ID from 1984 to 1987, and for the record, I was art director at Blitz roughly the same period. I spoke to Dylan uh, just after the holidays. Thank you very much for joining us, Dylan. Happy New Year to you. Same to you. Uh, now, before we come to ID, I'm interested to know what's happening at GQ. It's a tough year for everybody in publishing last year. H- how is GQ going? Uh, we had a, uh, we had a, uh, a year of mixed fortunes last year. I think that's... What has happened is that there's been a huge digital acceleration. And I think for brands like us who, were, who have, have pivoted for quite some time, we've been, we've been deep in events for quite some time, we've been deep in digital. Um, so the fact that we've had challenges at Newsstand, which we have just because everything's been shut and no one's been moving, uh, we the, the last four months of, of 2020, we had our best best uh, traffic ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, the month of December was our was our best month for traffic in the in the history of, of the title. So that's good. Um, and we also managed to pivot both of our events, our Men of the Year awards and our GQ Heroes events. We did both of those virtually. We made films for both of them. Uh, That was a massive learning curve for for the team. We had to hire in a certain amount of external expertise, but both were very successful. And um, we're looking forward to to seeing what this year brings, which will probably be some sort of combination of live and video. And you have to take the... The positives, and although there have been lots of things which we weren't able to do last year, other avenues opened up, and as I say, it's just accelerated that that change. But let's go back now to 1983 and ID magazine. What do you recall of that time? How, how did you first become part of the team? 
I had a pretty dissolute life for about 18 months. I, well, I just met St. Martin's and um, I was a, a not very good photographer and I was doing sort of odd jobs. Um, I, I was a cocktail barman at the fridge. I was a film extra. Um, I shoot down Roger Moore's plane in Octopussy, um, by the way. <laughs> You're welcome. And then I got a call from a friend of mine called Mark Bailey, who was taking some photographs for ID. And he needed someone to come along and interview the people he was photographing, which I did. I had nothing better to do. So I spent a day uh, interviewing all of these people that he was photographing. I, I typed up my notes and um, I, I must have delivered them or posted them or up to, to, to West Hampstead where Terry and Trisha lived and didn't really think anything of it. I mean, I certainly wasn't paid. And then I didn't have a telephone at the time, but I was staying with a friend over in St. Charles Square, over in Labrook Grove. And Terry had obviously been trying to track me down. And he literally, I'd, I'd never spoken to this man before, he literally said, would you like a job? Mm -hmm. uh, and I said yes, because it would have been stupid to say no. And that was it, basically. He gave me a career, he, he invented me. And that's, that, that's, mm -hmm. that's how it happened. I mean, I always say, when, if, if people, we have a lot of work experience and a lot of interns, um, come in asked, and if they ever come in for a chat, I, I say that the, the, the two most important things are wherever you are, you've got to work like stink. You've got to work harder than you've ever imagined working in your life. You've got to be incredibly enthusiastic, and the second thing is you've got to be lucky. Uh, and we can tr we can teach you the former, but we can't teach you the latter. And I was incredibly lucky. However, as, as as soon as I got that good fortune, I did work incredibly hard and threw myself into it. And as soon as I was immersed in that world, I realised that I pretty much didn't want to do anything else. Do you recall actually seeing the magazine for the first time? The first time you set eyes on ID? Had you seen it before then? Oh God, yeah. I am. Um, I mean, there was that fantastic period where ID, The Face and Blitz all launched within three months of each other. I can't quite remember the first issue I saw of, of Blitz because it went through various incarnations, but I did see it early. I remember the first issue of The Face because I bought it in a newsagent's next to the Greengrocers, mm -hmm. which I lived above in Stanford Hill. And then I saw that my first copy of ID, which was the first issue in the graphics department at St. Martin's. So um, I was an early adopter of all of, all of those magazines. And you've subsequently had a very successful and long-standing career in magazines. But at that time, did magazines seem to offer you a way? I mean, were you thinking about that or was it just you'd seen ID and that was kind of cool, but you moved on to something else? No, I was always a huge consumer of magazines and newspapers. I was a keen consumer of the NME from the age of 12. The first magazine I can remember buying is Gold Magazine, which was a football magazine. <laughs> and I bought that religiously. And then I moved to Pop Swap, which was sort of an early incarnation of Smash Hits. And then in 1972, when I was 12, I saw a copy of the NME. And uh -huh. that was it. And then I was a, a devout NME reader for the rest of the 70s. And then I started buying ID uh, and The Face and Blitz. Um, I bought Ritz magazine. I bought Interview. Um, so I was, I was a keen consumer. And obviously, I mean, becoming part of the team at ID at such an early stage, your kind of affiliation is to that magazine in a very essential sense. But how do you look back on it now in the context? I mean, your book, Sweet Dreams, goes through some detail about 
your experience of getting involved and you talked to Nick Logan from The Face and Kerry and Simon from Blitz etc some of the other the people behind the other magazines but do you still aside from your own personal experience do you still think ID stood apart in a particular way? I think they all had particular strengths I think that Blitz was doing a slightly different thing and I think that the I think it had a lot of the writing in it um, I think that uh, The Face probably was the closest to the magazine that I was interested in at the time because it was heavily driven by music but then ID was this kind of bizarre crazy kind of situationist tip sheet it was just bonkers and actually when I started working there I realised why it was so bonkers because of the way it was put together I mean I loved it I loved that period I, I think I, I look back with great fondness upon that period and I, I, I went to work for Nick Logan afterwards and have equal fondness for those years too but the, those early day, days in ID were, um, were such great fun and I think also because it was our iteration of Swinging London we very conceitedly and very arrogantly thought that we weren't just commenting and writing about the culture we were the culture and actually, even though that's a very sort of conceited thing to say, I think to a certain extent it's true. We're going to hear from Terry and Trisha after, after our conversation, uh, Dylan. But apart from something that they expressed well, and I know from talking to people over the years, is that the ID team always sort of expressed themselves as a family. Was that your experience? Oh, very much so. Uh, it, was a, it, was, it was a family in terms of the, the collective creative spirit. And it, it, and it was a real family in terms of the people who worked there because for years, uh, at least for two years when I was there, it was done from a, um, the top room in, in Terry's house in uh, West Hampstead. Or Actually, I used to live, live up there. It's basically Kilburn that's been rebranded as West Hampstead. And we, um, I loved it. And we, we sort of didn't, we didn't want to leave. We, we would arrive in the morning and then leave very late at night. And Trisha would always try and kick us out. Um, having fed us, we'd never seen so much food in our life. I mean, you have to realise that um, uh, most of the people who were there were sort of quite young and quite impoverished. I was 22 and I had been living on rubbish for, for years. I, I left home at the age of 16, went to London, and for sort of five or six years, I just lived on scraps because food's not important when you're young, or at least it wasn't then. And we'd be working up in the studio in, in Terry's house. And then we'd go down for, I don't know, we'd be offered a sandwich or we'd go down to make a cup of tea or something. We'd open the fridge. We'd never seen so much food in our lives. I mean, I remember my first trip to New York, my first trip to Paris, my first trip to Milan, L.A., all of these fantastic things that I did. But actually opening Trisha's fridge was probably the most exciting thing I'd ever done. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, that seems the perfect note on which to bring this chat to an end and go and hear from the man himself and indeed Trisha herself, uh, who tell a very similar story. Um, <laughs> so listen, thanks again for joining us and sharing that. Absolute pleasure. Huge thanks again to Dylan, who set the scene nicely for our main guest. Terry Jones founded ID magazine in response to what he saw on London streets in the late 70s as the liberation of the do-it-yourself punk years spilled over into further trends and tribes. We take this sense of freedom of mix and match between high and low fashion for granted today, along with the immediate reporting of new trends in magazines, newspapers and websites. But back then, Vogue didn't just overlook punk, it ignored it, as Terry explains. 
I spoke to him and his wife and collaborator Tricia Jones over the Christmas break. We looked back over his career, the founding of ID, the support the magazine received from Time Out's Tony Elliott, its subsequent sale to Vice Media and his developing work with the ID archive as featured in the 40th anniversary edition of the magazine. So, Terry, hi. Thank you very much for joining us today. I mean, the starting point for this conversation, there's a lot of things we could talk about, but I think we have to start and focus on the fact that it's the 40th anniversary of ID, the magazine you launched back in 1980. When you launched it, did you have any sense or expectation that 40 years later it would still exist? I think one of the things when I started the magazine, and it was kind of like a, um, a hobby, because it wasn't making any money, it was being funded by my commercial work, um, was that when Trish would ask me, why, why was I doing it? And I said, well, it will be a collector's item. But I, I never had an idea of where it would grow into or how it would grow up. And um, that wouldn't have happened without a lot of help. It just seemed that working in the, the kind of commercial magazines which I'd been doing once I you know started working with magazines um, there was a kind of a pattern but it was ignoring something which I felt was important particularly once punk started but it kind of that was something which I felt if in the 60s I'd been making a magazine I would have done it from my perspective of mod rocker greasers you know Growing up on an estate, I would have tried to have made a magazine that was a reflection of my life then. And Vogue, when it came to punk in 76, was not interested at all. Before that, had you ever considered starting a magazine in terms of what you're sharing there, in terms of your interest in the kind of burgeoning youth cultures that were around you and such? Did you ever sort of have in your mind that you might launch a magazine? I had the idea of doing um, a newspaper, and that was because I was inspired when I saw newspaper format picture um, tabloid that uh, came out of New York, and I wanted to do something called picture paper. And the idea was to get pictures that would never be published anywhere else, that you could then plaster your uh, uh, flat, you know, if you're a student or living at home, you would plaster with these um, diverse images. And I'd started contacting photographers who showed their work while I was at Vogue and who would never get to work at Vogue. And just images that caught my attention. And I tried to get support for it. And at that time, you know, I was very good friends with Toscani. He might have been the one who introduced me to the newspaper from New York. But it never went anywhere. But in my head, the idea to produce something was around that time. Mm -hmm. And and what time was that? That was the early 70s? Yeah, it it was before before I quit Vogue. Uh, So I'd been at Vogue from 72, and um, I think that it had got to a point where I felt frustrated a little bit with Vogue, but also... I could see myself becoming institutionalized. And so, uh, you know, I thought that I would be there for life. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, I think when the Jubilee cover that I wanted to have as a clear window with a just the word Vogue engraved in it was rejected or it didn't get produced how I thought it should be done. 
um, that's when I quit. But it took a year before I actually left. For a lot of people, to be creative director at Vogue magazine at any time is almost the dream job. Uh, but you, you've been there, was it five years? Well, it, it, I've been there four when I, when I, uh, and I, I stayed on until 77. Uh, so I was there five years altogether. My mother-in-law was absolutely kind of flabbergasted. Because, <laughs> you know, I, I was um, uh, throwing up, as you say, the, the, you know, the ideal job. But equally, uh, I was very good friends with Oliveira Toscani, who um, was encouraging me to, you know, make a break and become a stormtrooper art director, just drop in and do the job. Mm -hmm. Through that kind of, I don't know, uh, belief that there was something better to do. Um, And, uh, yeah, you know... I had a young family. It was was a kind of crazy move, but um, uh, Trish was working as a teacher. Um, uh, I'd done a book where I got my first royalty the month I'd um, left Vogue. And then within a month, um, Toscani had set me up with two people to meet where I ended up with a contract, you know, for a trade publication in Germany and um, a guy who was doing Jesus jeans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was the start of my kind of commercial art direction thing where I was flying into Germany and flying into mm-hmm. Italy on a regular basis. Let's just sort of roll back a little earlier, you know, to how you got to Vogue. You studied graphic design. So I studied in the west of England and I was um, doing the commercial art course, which was two years, and as I wasn't actually doing what was being asked on the course, I was only interested in doing print. And when Richard Hollis joined, I was threatened with being expelled for doing a... Um, I was doing the college magazine circuit, and there was a, a page which had hip-hip bullshit, which they'd just kind of got diploma status. And so they um, told me that I was having to leave. And... Uh, I threatened a strike. Um, as a union member, I, I kind of did the graphic, I was a graphic designer's um, department's union representative. Um, I threatened like a, um, a sit-in. So they came to a compromise and let me censor the word bullshit. Say. <laughs> was this your first magazine project? Yeah, I, it was um, because I was only interested in doing stuff which was printed. I became the, the kind of art director and editor of um, of the magazine and did two issues and uh, that was something which was funded by the, the uh, college student union funds mm-hmm. and so and so that this would have been the 60s yeah there was mm-hmm. 64 65 mm-hmm. and you uh, mentioned um richard hollis joined the course he came on as head of graphics and he was totally inspirational and encouraged me to do silk screening. And uh, he tried to get me to attend classes like the calligraphy class, which I did not uh, take to. But um, he was a, a massive inspiration. He sort of explained the whole concept of uh, Gestalt very simply. Funnily enough, you know, Universe was the typeface that he brought into the college um, type workshop and uh, I ended up using that for years at ID. Mm -hmm. And so you followed your interest in print and graphic design into 
a career working in magazines. Was it always going to be magazines for you, or was that no. sort of... Okay. I, my first job uh, was with a designer called Ivan Dodd, who was a kind of purist typographer, and uh, he took a chance because I quit college before finishing the course. And he was, again, a mentor on, uh, um, you know, really understanding everything about typography. And um, so uh, at the stage of starting my own magazine, um, I was almost um, wanting to break out the rules that were um, put in place by um, studying, you know, knowing almost too much about typography and so sort of like, that, you know, you should only use certain fonts together. So I, I think with ID, I had the opportunity to really create it like a fanzine and with mm-hmm. whatever had at hand. Just to sort of focus on what was actually happening at Vogue, because one of, one of the things, I mean, I've, I've tracked down a couple of issues of Vogue which bear your name on the masthead, and, you know, there, there are some striking pieces of typography and design in there that are not so far removed from what you were later to do at ID. I mean, not some of the more rebellious type stuff that you just discussed there, but there was definitely sort of letter-spaced Futura and little graphic arrows and devices that were appearing on the page. Do you see that, or is that...? Yeah, I think what I've found is that once you found typefaces, which you treated almost like a, um, a toolbox, I didn't feel I had to reinvent anything. I could kind of manipulate a typeface to do whatever, like swishing it on the, the photocopier or, you know, working with the mistakes that you'd have by re-photocopying. A lot of that was just necessity, but having no funding. So at, at, I, at Vogue, I, I learned, um, it was the beginning of, of um, uh, photo setting where you could um, play around with, you know, the, the amount of how, how far you could put space between letters or the simple rules of, of um, typewriting, what you could do with a typewriter. And so a lot of the typographic ideas were grown out of you know what you could do with a typewriter or you know physically mm-hmm. move things around with metal and so that came from working with um ivan who only really liked to use metal typefacing i used to then have to cut the space between you know mm-hmm. to reduce the space so everything was very physical and i think that that was something which at vogue i tried to kind of go through phases of, of um, design. And also, I had a, a good assistant who came on board, Keith Ablett, and he went on to work at Design Magazine. Um, so I'd find people that were able to keep to a kind of restricted palette, if you like, and then expand on the, on that. So, I, you know, it, it was the same with um, the way the a lot of the pages would be designed. So I always felt a magazine couldn't contain the content, which, you know, using full bleed and using a lot of range left. A lot of the cover lines uh, of issues that I like were almost like a, a shopping list, you know, range left. Yeah. If there was a mistake, if there was a typographic mistake, uh, it had to be cut because everything was pasted down on a board. It had to be cut by hand mm-hmm. to... You know, and uh, I, I'd have a full-time um, junior who would work on doing all of the, the corrections that uh, you know wouldn't be sent back to mm-hmm. type. 
Yeah. So, I mean, we're talking there about cutting out an apostrophe and moving it one character forward. Exactly. And that, yeah, yeah. Yeah. At the start of my career, that's how it was. It'll be amazing to some people listening to this to know that that was the degree of handmadeness that went into the layouts. The basis of that also um, created lots of the ideas that we then went on to explore in, mm-hmm. in, in ID. Nowadays, with a big fashion brand magazine like Vogue, the, the creative director is absorbed by the photography and the styling and the that side of visual presentation. And the graphic side is maybe not so, well, not a matter of not being considered. Of course, there's a group of people in the office, there's a the design team who are, are working on that. But it's not perhaps such an essential part of the project. Um, and, and yet what you're talking about there is it was a very much a design, you're talking about layouts and typography. Well, also at that time, the art director, you know, I'd start my day coming in um, and would have had all the pictures marked up where I wanted to do the crop. So the crop was in my control. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the selections was also done with the projector. So the projector would be, um, you know, making the choice and B. Miller, particularly the covers, would be done with her. And um, uh, B. Miller uh, being the editor. Oh, yeah, being Beatrice yeah. And so the actual crop and fitting it on the page, I'd always work with a light box. The process of design was really in the control of the art director as opposed to the photographer. Mm -hmm. The photographers would sometimes come in and see what would happen to their pictures, but were quite secondary to the process. And um, I think that by the time I had left, I felt that the photographers should be more involved in the process of selection, which saved, you know, uh, the um, the time that you'd end up going through. Someone like Newton, for instance, he would only send in um, three choices for a cover. And uh, at one time, uh, there was a Marisa Berenson cover um, where we lost the original and the two that we weren't using weren't as good as the original. And uh, my assistant at the at times, so, uh, you know, went absolutely spare because uh, he had to find it. It was found in the dustbin. It cleaned up. <laughs> that found in the dustbin, sort of retrieved, which was very lucky because it was a much better shot. So that physical process was so different than today where everything is kind of digitally sent over. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Partly because of that, I guess, that it was the case that you were as much involved in design decisions as art direction and crop decisions. Absolutely. And and also being able to get away with covers like um, the Bianca Jagger cover, which was like a fraction of a frame. Um, I'd flip it up to a 10 by 8, mm-hmm. the only way through the print department, or the Polaroid cover, which they didn't like. With all these types of crops and experiments with photography and such, you were pushing against what was the accepted norm in terms of how much you can get out of a single image. And I was fortunate enough to have an editor who, you know, let that go through um, at a particular time where New York was changing its format size. So um, Alexander Lieberman, who was like overall boss, was not watching what I was doing. So Mm -hmm. I was able to break rules um, and uh, looking back, you know, it was a prime time. I was very naive, <laughs> not realising that uh, that wasn't the norm. But, um, you know, when I look back at 
favorite covers. Um, I, I think that they still stand time. And I always felt a cover was something which should kind of represent that moment. What sort of magazines and other elements were you looking at for inspiration? What was happening around you at the time? I, I wasn't really a magazine kind of, you know, I, I, I would look at what was around if I was in a, in a room, you know, waiting room or whatever, but I didn't buy magazines. I, there, there were obviously magazines that were um, influential before, Nova, um, was a, a favorite of Trish, and I think Sunday Times we used to get, and I think that that was a, a very well produced um, and designed magazine content wise. It was, you know, always good. But um, I think that, you know, working at Vogue was like a full time occupation. I didn't really take, take notes of what was going on outside. And I think it was more things like, you know, what was going on on the street, particularly. Um, when you know punk kicked off, so I, I, I think that um, magazines weren't my inspiration. Uh, I, I think that uh, you know what was happening with, in music was more mm-hmm. inspirational. Pre-punk, what? So when, I mean, when you say music, what were you talking about? Well, I'm not. I I would like R and B and reggae. Mm-hmm. I think that would go back to when you know as a. a college um and in bristol we you know we had a club called the golden marble club and and so i i you know produced stuff for that and and uh just generally i think album covers and stuff you know i thought were um uh, were kind of inspirational too mm-hmm but then you're working at vogue you're becoming aware of punk and the fashion effect that that was going to play out on and then you know the story goes that there's a photographer steve johnson who, who brought you a set of images he came in with his portfolio of, uh, as a student uh, he hadn't done portraits of people he had i don't know landscapes and and stuff like that and then and he was a, a really nice guy you know young kid from Carlisle. and uh, i just said you know you're not going to make a living out of this he wasn't someone i would commission to do fashion uh, um, but I suggested that he could document what was going on on the King's Road because I had this idea of doing this newspaper and um, and I thought folk might be interested you know but there's no way that we could commission it and after three months he came in with a set of photographs um, and uh, he transformed his look himself, you know, he had dyed his hair, he sort of put a jacket together with safety pins and uh, and when B. Miller saw him in my room, she had only identified punk to what she'd read in the um, pink papers. So, you know, it, she only saw the negative aspect of it but, and wasn't interested in, you know, even <laughs> contemplating publishing it. Uh-huh. <laughs> But, uh, you know, Xander Rhodes picked up and did her kind of ripped and torn collection. And I think I almost got away with a a cover as well of her uh, frocks. But, yeah, it wasn't something which... Um, Caroline Baker, who, who went on to work with Vivian, was contributing to Vogue at that time. And um, you couldn't get away with things that were picking up off the street. You know, it just it wasn't 
being taken seriously. Mm-hmm. Even by Caroline? Caroline really would put it into her styling, but her styling was still tempered by um, Vogue. And, and she was a super inspiration to wanting to do our own magazine. Before ID, we had got this idea of um, uh, doing a, something called the Whole World Clothes Catalogue. And that was with Toscani and, mm-hmm. and Caroline and I. And that was going to be one of the things which, you know, we thought of doing almost like a quarterly. I produced a dummy, got it costed out. Um, and, um, yeah, it never happened. <laughs> but <laughs> conceptually it was there. And, mm-hmm. conceptually that, and that was in 76, 77. It was a forerunner, I suppose, of what we did with ID and the, the head to toes, the straight ups. But there was a three-year gap where I was doing commercial work. Having left Vogue, you didn't immediately jump into producing ID. You, you, you no, were doing no. your commercial work. You already mentioned you had your young family. I went on, you know, to, uh, when German Vogue was, um, had started and, and so I, I came in as kind of consultant on that. And then Donna magazine um, was starting and, and uh, Toscani uh, suggested I um, came in as consultant for that. So I did the kind of logo and type concept, but it was, again, this thing of sort of coming in for a week to work on an issue with their in-house art director. And um, it was when Donna was being conceived that I'd said we should do a magazine about the street. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, Flavio Lucchini said, there'll never be any money in that. You've just got to do something that's more like Vogue. And of course, I, after waiting six months, I realised it wasn't going to happen, and so started just funding it from the commercial work I was doing. I mean, what was your first step? Where did you go then to start actually launching a magazine? Again, it was Caroline Baker who introduced me to Jolly, who was a fanzine printer. I approached him and said I had this idea, um, and I had met um, Alex McDowell, who um, was a student. He was a um, a painter at St. Martin's when I was doing, I did a book called Not Another Punk Book. And um, uh, in that, um, I'd used Steve's portraits, head to toes on the King's Road as the basis. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd met Dennis Morris, who'd done the Sex Pistols pictures. And uh, Al um, was working with a band called The Rich Kids. And um, I'd got Toscani involved in photographing um, the band, which was um, signed with EMI. And so Al, by then, had set up Rocking Russian Design, which is where Neville Brody started out as a, his career. Um, so Neville uh, didn't get involved in ID, but Al was on Berwick Street. So um, he and I sort of pieced together this... Uh, landscape format I wanted to have so it was as wide like the street and um, and then Jolly agreed to print it and I would buy copies of mm-hmm. Jolly the distribute and then um, it kind of grew because it was always being dumped in our house and that went on for three years to, uh, Ferrucci came on board to distribute at a point where I was going to give up and then um, when I was running up too much debt um, is when I met up with Tony Elliott and Tony was like the saviour for mm-hmm. 
um, yeah, bailing us out when you know we we sort of uh, accrued quite a bit of debt. Tony Ellett being the founder and uh, chairman of Time Out magazine. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's worth a nod towards, I mean, you know, you note his support for what you were doing, but I think it's perhaps a, an overlooked role that he had was that he was hugely, and Time Out as, as a whole, was hugely supportive of smaller magazines. And, and it was, you know, very much luck, serendipity that uh, he supported ID. Uh, he could have supported Blitz. Um, and... Uh, you know, I, I'm forever grateful, which is why I wanted to dedicate the 40 Winks portfolio that's in the new issue to um, to him and Trisha. Because, you know, without both of them, um, the ID would never have uh, mm-hmm. continued. Mm-hmm. You've launched this new magazine and clearly you're very busy day to day with your commercial work. But you've got this new project, which is called ID. It's a great name. Was it an obvious name? Did the name just click or, or was that a... There was, I don't know, half a dozen names that were kind of rattling around and Trisha and I, we, uh, we in our house, we had like this uh, um, two bars, you know, so that was our kind of uh, morning board meeting was in the bath um, <laughs> and Trish Major said, well, you know, with ID, that's got to be the title. And it, and it was also, you know, it was the signature of my design studio was called um, Informat Design. So I played around with the, the initials I and D, um, as you do. Um, but um, I, I should, you know, get her to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she, uh, you know, she knew straight away that ID sounded right. The magazine was going to be about identity, and the logo was what we started with, with just doing a graphic cover. It was only after, um, you know, realizing when you turned the magazine on the side. But it was a winking face. So that was a, a coincidence. That wasn't part of the design. It, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't an original idea, you know, from the from the beginning. But the minute we realised that the, the winking face was in the logo, that was how we started doing the wink, which mm-hmm. we then ran faces from issue five. I was just talking to Terry about how, you know, the very, very kind of detailed origins of how ID kind of came to be. And we talked through it to a degree, but I was asking about the name and he was saying that that you were absolutely certain about ID as soon as it came up. Yeah, this is more information than you need. But we had two baths in our... Can you tell you this? He did, but it's a great story. (laughs) Okay, all right. So we have two baths in our bathroom at Sheriff Road. And um, he was in his bath, I was in mine, and he was just going through the different names. He said, I've, you know, had these ideas. I mean, honestly, how, how pathetic to be talking about this when you're both in the bath. However, <laughs> um, <laughs> and he just went, I think he probably went through about four or five names and he got to ID and I was like, that's the one. Yeah, I don't know why. It just, it was so, to me, it was just completely obvious. I don't know, it was just like the right name. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know you've always been very involved in the magazine, above and beyond sort of supporting Terry as his partner. You, you were a key part of the project. To be honest, I, I always say that I wasn't at the you know at the beginning. I really wasn't. I just cook, I cook for people. That was it. Mm-hmm. You know, we had kids. 
I was still teaching. Um, and Terry would, you know, have people come home in the evening, you know, from as students, they would come after college. Nobody was getting paid. Um, I'm a Jewish mom. What did I do? You know, I was carrying <laughs> four others Jones. And uh, so obviously I wanted to feed them. And, uh, you know, they were students. And I think, I don't know if it was Robin, Derek or Dylan, um, <laughs> one of them made comments about, you know, God, we used to open your fridge and it was always full. <laughs> <laughs> and as students, they thought that was brilliant. I just used to cook pasta for people, pasta and salads and soup. Mm -hmm. and yes, you know, the sort of thing that you could cook for a lot of people. But the other thing was that <laughs> Terry would never let me feed them too early. <laughs> and then they'll get tired and want to go home. Um, and I would always be, you know, I was chief chuffer outer. Uh -huh. I would come up at like 11.30 at night and say, hey, guys, you know, Terry, they've got homes to go to. Let them go home. Uh -huh. And the thing is that basically when Terry's working, he re truthfully and genuinely, he doesn't think about time. Mm -hmm. He really doesn't. It was the top floor of a terraced Victorian house. So, and we'd knock two rooms into one for Terry's studio. So physically, you couldn't have... I mean, you know, if it was six people, that was, you know, that was kind of a lot. Terry had this theory that sort of people would just, you know, but it, it's true. I mean, he says it and it's absolutely true. People would, people would find us. They, you know, somebody would come and work and then they'd recommend their friend and they'd say, oh, well, you should meet so-and-so. And people would come in the door and they would get given a pencil. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> To be honest, at the beginning, I really wasn't involved in the editorial side of it at all. Um, I really wasn't. Um, that was completely Terry. And I remember, you know, he said, I mean, his classic phrase to me was, you know, um, I want to, to infiltrate the mainstream, which, of course, has become completely prophetic now. Yeah. It's absolutely hysterical. But he did really say that. And he would say, you know, in, you know, th this will be a collector's item one day. And I went, oh, shut up, <laughs> as, as wives do, you know. Well, I've got you here as well. Can I just ask you, I mean, you've watched this, the idea of this magazine and you've said, yes, the, the, the name ID is the name. Did you ever think that it would still be around 40 years later? No, of course I didn't, honestly. I really, and you know, I was the one, I mean, Terry never bought a magazine. I used to read Nova all the time. I mean, I was the one who, if I ever had any money, would buy a copy of Vogue if I was going somewhere mm -hmm. on a train, if I had the money. But Nova was my magazine. Mm -hmm. And uh, if someone would have said to me, I think Nova lasted for nine years. Yeah. And if someone would have ever said in the 60s, you know, you will, no, no, not in a million years. There was no career plan, nothing from my side, absolutely nothing like that. I was a teacher. That's what I did, you know. Can you remember seeing the first printed issue of ID? Not really. No, I can, I can remember piles and piles in the hall. We had a very narrow entrance hall because it's a sort of tall, bay-fronted Victorian house and very narrow entrance hall. And mm -hmm. boxes would arrive and my heart would sink. And actually, that was the point when the magazine moved out the house. At one point, I mean, you know, we'd been with Ferrucci and he'd bought a certain number of copies and that was brilliant and kept us going. But at one point, I... I think Terry must have come back from Wales before me or something. I came back with the children. 
I couldn't get in. <laughs> I couldn't physically with our cases and everything else. And I was like, this has got to stop. It's crackers, you know. And that was probably at the point that Terry, you know, Terry's, I mean, our relationship with Tony was very, very close indeed. Uh, he became an incredibly good friend. We, we became guardians to his children and blah, blah, blah. But it actually started, Terry and Tony, um, T Terry went to Tony and, uh, you know, it started like that. So I didn't even know Tony at the beginning, mm -hmm. at all, although, you know, they became really close friends. So um, I don't know. It, it, it was a very serendipitous journey. And I would say that at the beginning, I really was sort of mum and looker after. Um, but quite, I'm, I'm, at some point, Terry had asked me to do, you know, to, to be involved with the advertising side. And it was just because he'd been at Vogue. And so I knew some of the names. Mm -hmm. And I could talk to people on the phone and try and sell them a page of advertising. But later on, um, and I, I actually can't put a time on it, but I then became much more involved in the management side and making decisions about what we should and shouldn't do mm -hmm. uh, on a management level. And then very much the people side of things. Terry's right. I mean, no one was allowed to raise their voice in the office. Nobody was allowed to slam doors, including us. And we had to clear up properly for the cleaning lady. And, you know, I mean, just general good manners, mate. <laughs> good manners. <laughs> and another thing that was really important to me was that as journalists, to me, it was really a position of responsibility, not of power. And back in the day, before the Internet, before the Internet, before bloggers and everybody had, you know, everybody was, you know, had a voice. To be journalist was really, really powerful. I think people forget, and we could really influence the way people thought about certain things. And I, without putting a you know a huge thing of it, but I used to say to people, look, if if a big company will pay thousands, you know, to advertise with us, it's obviously whether it's Gucci or Prada or whoever, um, it's because. You know, they think we can influence things in a, in a certain way. I really want it to be the responsibility. We have a responsibility. And so I would occasionally put in like, oh, please, we're not going to do that. Or please don't, let's do that. Thank you, Tricia. I think you can understand it was very much a family affair. You know, both both our kids kind of had to put up with, uh, um, as Tricia said, you know, fighting their way in through the boxes and and in fact we we're quite embarrassed about the magazine initially but once they both you know took up photography um, they became an integral part of not only taking pictures but mm -hmm. being you know feeding ideas they, they were more involved in the scene both Kate and Matt were both clubbers and, and so they, they were aware of things which were relevant to the magazine and their input became really important clearly kind of very quickly caught the wind and became much bigger and the print run was blocking up your hallway and you had to move out into an office and was there a point where you began to think well actually hang on we're going beyond infiltrating we're becoming the mainstream i think uh, the the magazine still always stayed relevant because this sort of you know evolvement of of um editors and uh, the people that were contributing and i think that we never saw it as paying our bills. We were supporting the, the staffing and everything like that, you know, the financial aspect of it, with all being taken care of, you know, with uh, time out. Um, and so uh, half of my time um, 
at least was you know doing doing uh, commercial work and then yeah, there were times also when we had um, ID Japan started I I, I was a creative director for a spree um, for uh, Doug Tompkins asked me to get involved in that in the 90s and at that point I'd asked Nick to step in as a picture editor contributor so that the that was a the end of the 80s going into the 90s. So there were periods where it got pretty stressful um, and uh, just juggling the things which were paying the bills, uh-huh. and, uh, yeah. keeping staff going. And then there were times where um, things were tough with time out and we, you know, we remortgaged our house a couple of times. I think at one point, I think around... Um, the birthday issue, the 15th birthday issue, um, we we ended up with kind of huge bills um, after doing a massive party. And other people, you know, had told us everything was hunky-dory and, and suddenly it wasn't. And um, we then um, had to drop the commercial work and, and uh, just concentrate on ID. And, uh, you know, had to speak to the bank manager and say, okay, we, you know, it's going to be a year where uh, we going to be doing something else so um and uh if we hadn't done that we would have had to stop Mm -hmm. but it worked and we focused on uh you know being more involved with um you know with the fashion industry and that was an important change for the magazine and then there was there was a point where um, we bought out um with tony we sort of jumped through a lot of hoops and, and we were able to um, take full control, 100% control on the magazine. Um, so it it was this kind of roller coaster, if you like, um, uh, where, you know, finances could be good and finance could be uh, not so good. Um, and uh, by the end, um, it, it was the right time to sell when we sold. And we were very, very lucky that... I said to you we had to wait to be approached. Yeah, we, we, we were approached by three people in the same year. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, knowing Andrew uh, Crichton, who uh, work, was working with Vice, but had been our ad manager, um, it was with him that uh, the sale went through. Uh-huh. And that, that was 2012? Yes. yes. I mean, having spent so long and, and with so many close friends and family involved in the project. Was that a plan? I heard Trish in the background saying that you were waiting to be approached. So you'd obviously discussed uh, some sort of end to your involvement. Was that a difficult process to go through or or was was there an element of relief? Can I just explain? What happened was that people had approached us in the years before. Different people had come to us when we weren't ready to sell at all. And it was kind of like daft and we weren't, weren't interested. And then... Terry had a sort of a health scare, just basically running around too much and doing too much the year before. And then that year, 2012, we were like, you know what? It's kind of time to... Uh All we said was, and I remember saying this to Terry, basically, if somebody comes to us again this year, we should take it seriously. And we knew at that point, I mean, I knew absolutely 
And I remember saying this to Terry, we can't go to the market. If we had mm -hmm. said to everyone, we want to sell, it would have been awful. Because yeah. they said, oh, Terry and Trish are leaving, blah, 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 blah. So we couldn't do that. But we just had to be open if anyone came to us. As opposed to going, no, we don't want to, we would take it seriously. And just by sheer chance three different sets of people came to us and honestly to be really honest we did absolutely no research at all <laughs> we're a couple of old hippies and i was like you know what we were so busy and there was so much going on we had an exhibition in china that year i mean there was so much going on and i was just like you know if it's meant to happen it's going to happen throw the balls in the air and see what comes down our concerns or other people's you know, concerns was would the magazine change drastically with, you know, with, uh, um, Holly was a fantastic caretaker. Uh, uh, but we, you know, we did this kind of handover period and it ended up that they have been very respectful and the magazine's integrity has been kept. And that's kind of what uh, I felt everyone um, who's stayed as a, you know, following the magazine... Um, I've always said, you know, as a fanzine, we've had the fans that have kept us going. Um, and it's still, you know, still producing content that's relevant, very much relevant to what's going on today um, in a way that uh, the, um, the ethos of the magazine uh, is, is even more relevant than when we started back in 1980. Right from the beginning, even in its zine days, it called itself the worldwide manual of style. But that's where you got. <laughs> well, that's where you actually got to, wasn't it? You 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 had this enormous international influence. But what was that built on? And in the end, what were you doing that managed to keep the thing relevant for all those forty years? Honestly, it was Terry's initial wide open vision. Because you know, we always used to say it. We don't want you know. It wasn't to do with an age thing. You can have people who are very narrow-minded, who are young, and you can have people who are very broad-minded, who are older. So it, it, it became not just some, something of age. It became to do with, do you have a broad vision? So things like the multi-ethnicity, the age, the, you know, the wide-open stuff that ID did right from the beginning came from Terry. And I would say that the sort of respect that I absolutely expected everyone to show came from me. The grounding of what we tried to do um, was get people to uh, fit in with their um, contribution and use their talents. And, uh, and you know, when I needed an, uh, a personal assistant, Kate would help come up with, you know, Eloise Alme, who became our kind of right hand, knew where we were, or um, Rose, Rose Paul, you know, would, again, be someone sort of out of university and sort of end up being our, half our brain. Um, and uh, I think that that thing of having people who really had a talent but grew within that talent mm -hmm. was something which um, I, I, I think, you know, was more than just a school and more than just a university. It was something which um, became a, a identifiable that, uh, you know, people would want to be part of. And I think that's something which became global because it happened in Japan. It was beyond language. And that idea of, you know, fashion breaks down barriers beyond language was something which I.D. ID's appeal
mm-hmm. meant to be mm-hmm. global. And that, that's something which, you know, sustained us, which is why we're still, you know, after 40 years, still relevant, I think. And after 40 years, I mean, you, you've got a huge archive. And I, I want to come to some of the thoughts around what you're doing with that archive. But before I get that, I've got one sort of particular question I'd like to just drop on you. We've talked about the people you've helped, the people that have been part of the team, the people that have grown around you, etc. And, and it's obviously, it's, it's a hugely positive and empowering kind of story. We've talked about lots of successes. At what junctures were mistakes made? I think if one thinks of mistakes beyond like, I, you know, I, I've made my career on graphic mistakes. I'd always capitalise mistakes where, um, where you can. I think that the kinds of things which you would maybe change second time round were part of a learn, learning lessons that you do um, uh, at the point where maybe we step back too much um, Entrusting mm-hmm. financial aspects of, of it to, um, you know, when, uh, uh, say, advertising sales where an advertiser would be overselling um, and th- th- not being able to deliver on that, that was definitely a mistake where we weren't keeping our eye mm-hmm. on what salespeople were trying to kind of put over because personally, we always had the thing of, undersell and overperform as opposed to yeah. oversell and underperform. And you can see that's going on now with government. So yes. it's like that's a, you know, a, a key thing because we never had an advertising budget personally. So that's why we started doing things like the events um, and the events that we did, like the exhibition uh, identity that traveled would be funded by, uh, you know, it would, be a sponsor um and uh, i mean i suppose you know one of the silly mistakes we made was when armani was a sponsor of um the the first exhibition we did smile id um and he was sponsoring five cities we did london first milan second and i put tom ford on the cover of the issue which was going to be out um in milan um and uh, you know minute uh, um, Georgia saw that he he thought what's going on he, he could not have you know put um, another designer on on the issue that was a that was a, a mistake um, he pulled in his sponsorship <laughs> yeah uh, I think the mistakes that we made were, were maybe commercial on the other side um, where we were being offered um, finance by someone we didn't respect um, and uh, we wouldn't do Coca-Cola we you know there was um, I think another sponsor was a coffee maker that uh, wasn't doing fair trade and we wouldn't go with them so there were certain things where Trish would say no we definitely can't do that (laughs) Um, I think that there was a point where a publisher in Italy uh, Mondadori um, we had meetings with and we liked Mr Mondadori um, but then we found out that um, Berlusconi had a stake in Mondadorium, so we definitely didn't want to do that. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. There were things that you learn and naively go through. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So I'd like to take you back just talking about your graphic work being kind of based on mistakes. And the one thing, as I understand it, that you retained when you sold the magazine to Vice Media was 
the archive, the exhibitions, the collection of, of material from those 30-odd years that you'd been responsible for the magazine. And you've got that all housed where you're living now. Yes, uh, we're down in Wiltshire. So we, we, we were super fortunate to find this um, granary barn um, with a, a local farmer and to bring what had been stored in, uh, in uh, um, spaces when it came back from the different exhibition venues. Uh, uh, Smile had been in Moscow and uh, the Identity last show was in Beijing. And so the, these were stored and we were paying um, storage space and then um, bringing it all into one place has, has you know, it was super fortunate. And what I'm trying to do now is use what's salvaged into creating what I call maps um, of things which connect to so how ideas connect, people connect. Um, the collages were kind of based on I, a variety of ideas and using some of the print things which um, locally I could kind of take a detail and blow it up and using collaging um, to create these um, uh, these sort of maps that can be hung or laid flat and eventually um, go through the video footage and use the TV screens that we had in the identity exhibition um, as a, a part of a, a you know a, a project which hopefully can be distributed eventually. Uh -huh. As far as I'm aware, the only published aspects of the work that you're doing on those maps and uh, etc. is in the 40th anniversary issue of ID, is that right? Yes, because yeah. I'd started thinking about it um, when uh, the you know 40th anniversary was there and I thought, oh, it would be nice to do 40 winks and choose um, where I had a really good wink on a cover. Um, and uh, take that as a basis um, for doing 40 kind of individual covers collaged in some way. And then uh, it kind of grew from that. And, and having a deadline um, in October was um, was a motivation. Of course, they, they were still works in progress. Um, but part of the idea is, is that they are movable anyway, that the pieces can be moved around on, a, on, um, on blown up prints. I'd just like to pick up one thing you said there in terms of trying to identify 40 great winks. Because, of course, in case people listening aren't aware, every single front cover features a face with a wink on it. But the person has their uh, their right eye closed. Yeah, um, multiple people on the cover. Uh, so. uh, sometimes multiple, but everybody concerned has their right eye closed, echoing the, the ID logo. It's an extraordinary thing that you've never failed to achieve that wink. Is that right? There have been a few cheats. Lee Bowery, um, you know, didn't do a wink, but we wanted to put him on the cover. And uh, so we used the uh, typography porky in, in his eye um, and a few other things. So, you know, there was one, the anarchy issue. Um, Steve Mails was uh, um, in, in the art department at the time and, and uh, we um, wanted to have one which wasn't winking. Um, and uh, it was um, a... a, a Girl who was crying, the model was crying. Uh -huh, uh -huh. But that was kind of a power reversi, um, and we thought it would be appropriate not to have a wink there. Sometimes it's just the eye is um, is covered because hide is some ID's in the middle of hide, mm -hmm. so it's the hidden self 
And so um, where we couldn't get a wink, we'd have a hair over the eye or um, a fist over the eye. So there have been sort of variable versions of having it so the, the right eye is the one that's open. And even people like Madonna had problems with her right eye, so we flipped her around. <laughs> the times. So you picked the 40 winks and you're busy collaging them and you, you mentioned videoing the results, etc. Can you envisage the sort of final outcome for this? Is, is this another exhibition or a publication? Or I think that where it goes in my head um, is a combination of things. It can be a, a virtual. Um, it might be um, a different, different scales because there's... That's just part of it. I, I want to try and create a series of portraits and landscapes around um, people and places. Um, so over the next sort of year or so, um, I hope that the ideas will kind of grow. And I think that, you know some of the basis of um, the ideas are definitely around individuals or the links between individuals. And I, you know I trace a lot, say back to where Toscani was an influence and then where it went from there, the, the connections of him or Nick Knight, obviously, Mark Le Bon, um, editors, uh, Dylan, Karen, um, current editors like Alistair and Edward. And Edward obviously was massively important because he was there from the age of 18. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about Edward Ennethel there? Yes. Yeah. And I think that, you know, Ed, Edward's probably been the greatest contributor for so long um, other people that stayed, um, you know, uh, Simon Foxton from when Karen introduced me and he was still a student at St. Martin's and then I um, introduced him to Nick Knight um, Judy Blame. I mean, you could fill a book with the names, to be honest. I mean, it would be a project <laughs> for someone to take on. Um. <laughs> but it's also, I mean, just in the few kind of double-page spreads of the works in progress and the shots of you from above looking at these big blow-ups, it's all about print again, isn't it? It's all about the physicality of the blow-ups of front covers where you see the half-tone dots. And that was part of a series that I wanted to do. There's like a couple where there's like, it's, it's um, a double of like, um, Craig McDean, um, two, two of his covers where I've, I've taken um, a, a magenta and cyan and then I've done the black and yellow or, you know, so mix the screens uh -huh. and blend them up. And so I've superimposed there, you know, at, at scale. So it is that idea of, uh, because it's a grain store, I thought, well, I'll play around with the whole idea of grain. And, <laughs> and so the one I'm looking on is like the Naomi one. Yeah with Naomi Campbell's first cover um, and that's kind of a, a detail of her blown up when we did the Andy Warhol inspired cover mm -hmm. together with the blue one and then blue was um, connected to uh, Jerry Hall yeah. um, Jer Jerry Hall with the, um, the Parkinson cover and, with blue and then um, the first black supermodel Pat Cleveland which was on a Vanity Fair cover mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that was I think it was Pat Cleveland's first cover um, which David Montgomery did when I was at Vanity Fair um, and so it was that sort of idea of like West black supermodels um, and you know Naomi used to be in competition with Kate Moss for who would get the most covers uh -huh. I think the Kate Moss collage is started at the background there but like there's one collage yeah. with Kate and three other covers 
all done at the same period where I was using Grot 9. And Grot 9 was the theme on that one, which was the typeface I used on the punk book. Yeah. So sometimes the, the idea can be typographic, like the typeface. Um, OCR was another one. I can't let you go without asking one final question. And that revolves around the fact that in 2009, I was involved in an exhibition in the city of Luxembourg to do with them being the um, European capital of culture that year. And it involved a whole range of then current independent magazines. And one of the things we did with everybody concerned in the exhibition, about 100 magazines, was to ask them which magazine had inspired them to start their magazine. And the vast majority said ID. So I, ju I just wondered, I mean, we've heard your story and, and that in itself is an inspiration. I just wondered whether you had any advice for somebody who was going to start their own magazine tomorrow? Have a clear idea of, of a simple concept. Um, and if you're not doing it just yourself, but want other people involved, um, empower other people. Lovely. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to hear from you. You too, Jeremy. All the best. Bye now. Thanks very much again to Terry and Tricia for their time and to Dylan Jones for his contribution. Thank you also to Park Communications for their continued support of the podcast. And of course, thank you to you for listening. Don't forget to check out the Mad Culture Journal for images of Terry's 40 Winks work with the ID archives. And finally, look out for another series of our Instagram Live conversations soon. Check the journal for details. See you for our 23rd episode soon. Bye.